Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. I think I mentioned this last week, but music has always been a really important part of the culture of our family, whether it's just been Julie and I at home alone or the kids nowadays, maybe they're back with us for a weekend or for a break, but when they were had music playing as we sit outside together as a family or just hang out, and you know how this goes. When you hear music in certain situations, the songs get etched into the memories and they get etched into the experiences, and from then on, when you hear the song, you just, in your mind anyway, return to that setting. And we have just tons of those musical connections in our family. And so when it came to pick a song for this weekend's theme of marriage, a number of different ones came to mind. One in particular that we chose not to do is a song by a group called Little Big Town. And the song is called Better Man. They're one of these new country But it's called Better Man. It came out, I think, in 2017. And the first time I heard it, Julie and I were in our backyard. And when the song came on, very enthusiastically, actually a little bit too enthusiastically, Julie said, oh, I love this song. Turn it up. It's one of my favorites. I'd never heard the song before. But the chorus went like this. Sometimes in the middle of the night, I can feel you again, but I just miss you. And I just wish you were a better man. And I, and I know why we had to say goodbye, and I just wish you were a better man, a better man. And as it was playing, I said to Julie, should I be concerned at all that your favorite song is, I wish you were a better man? Is there like a not-so-subtle message coming through that? So we didn't do that song because I'm trying to flush that memory far away. We did John Legend's song, All of Me. Manuel did it. And I've always liked this song. I don't know if I can explain it completely why, but it it pierces me every longing and the passion of a husband and wife giving themselves fully to each other. And I like it for that reason. But the song also stirs a conflict in me over the ideal on the one hand And what we all know and melody and harmony simply do not capture the reality of the minor keys and out-of-tune notes in every marriage. And so today's topic is marriage, real marriage stuff, hopefully, and how we can grow in intimacy in our relationships. So if you would stand for our scripture reading, and you don't have to turn far, it's on page three. I'm going to be reading from Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to start at the second part of verse 20 and read through verse 25. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, 
and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I've been thinking about this weekend's topic of marriage for an unusually long time. It's really a crucial subject, and so just to give you a heads up, I've given myself permission to ramble a bit today, not that I don't ramble most times, but it's far too vast, and we cannot uh, do much with it in one talk. But I think this subject is really important for at least two reasons. First, in spite of all the chaos and confusion surrounding marriage and all the endless opinions swirling about, about what marriage is and what it involves and who it should involve or not involve, and the heartache and the pain of divorce, in spite of all of this very real and important stuff, marriage is foundational in shaping men, shaping women, and shaping children, and shaping a family. It's foundational in building a certain kind of culture in a home. And every single children, extended family who may live there or come to visit, and even friends who come to visit, are shaped and influenced by the tone and the feel and the health of the marriage. So for that reason alone, it is good for us to talk about this. But the second reason I think this is important is because as important as marriage is, at Oak Hills, we've not really talked about this much in recent years. I actually don't remember the last time we did a series on the subject, and we used to do them often, And I don't remember the last time we had a service dedicated to the subject of marriage. And the challenge in talking about marriage in a context like a Sunday morning service married, and so what are they supposed to do with this? There are many people whose marriage is a source of deep pain. So what do they do with this? There are younger people who are not even close to thinking about marriage, so what do they do with this? And it is hard to talk about marriage without sounding, on the one hand, sappy, or on the other hand, cynical. It is impossible for me to venture into this subject without thinking about my own marriage to Julie and talking about my own marriage to Julie. And in some ways, almost everything I'm saying has its reference point in my marriage to Julie. And in talking about my marriage and thinking about it, it is hard to stand here without it sounding like I'm being self-serving in some of this stuff or without you getting the impression that I or Julie and I are way neater, way nicer, and way better than we actually are or way worse than we actually are. And I realize the gravity of all of these challenges. And there are many other challenges in this topic as well. And they can redemption story. Marriage appears right at the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, as we say at almost all weddings, God invented the idea of a man and a woman committing themselves to each other in a marriage for the rest of their lives. And so in the Bible, marriage is a big deal. 
And what is said in Genesis chapter 2, in particular, this phrase I want us to focus on today about the man and woman becoming one flesh, this phrase is reiterated throughout the Bible, including in the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 and in Mark chapter 10, and then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 by the Apostle Paul, and again by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. The picture of two becoming one then is God's vision for marriage. Something important. It represents something. We might say it this way. It is an illustration of God's redemptive story. God reconciling people to himself and to each other. We could say it this way. Restoring oneness or mutual flourishing. And I'm not sure this vision of marriage is understood very well in the pragmatic and chaotic times in which we live. So let me say this clearly. If we are married, or if we ever plan to be, our marriage is not primarily intended to fulfill or heal our wounds. Our marriage is intended to be a picture of God's redemptive and reconciling love, where two who are very different, man and woman, husband and wife, become one. And there is intimacy and there is mutual flourishing. So practical tips to improve a marriage are all very well and they're all very good. And there's a time and there's a place for all those things. But today I want us to think about a vision of marriage, a vision of our marriage. God's intention capture or maybe understand for the first time the high calling we have in our marriage relationship. So let's start by talking about this idea of intimacy, or as it's put in the Bible, the two become one. The first man was made by God, and God, we are told in Genesis 2-7, breathed the breath of life into him. The first woman was made by God, we are told in Genesis 2, by God using a part of the man. Genesis 2-21 says it but the first two people were intimately connected to each other right from the start given that they were made of the same stuff and they were made by God and for God so Adam declares in verse 23 she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man and that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The man and the woman experienced intimacy. And sexual intimacy is certainly part of the idea, but intimacy is not only that. The man and the woman experienced a comprehensive intimacy involving their wills, thoughts, feelings, bodies, souls, and social connection. Whole person intimacy is the idea. They connected. They were one. And God was with them, and it was all very good. So good, so intimate, so connected. They were both naked, we are told. And they felt not a single ounce of shame. The two were one in every way possible. And I want to suggest to you, this is God's vision of marriage. That the two would become one flesh. That the two would be a living example of God's redemptive plan of reconciliation. 
intimacy with God and intimacy with each other. Shalom in the relationship of God's redemptive and reconciling power. See, my marriage is not about me getting my needs met. It is about the two of us, Julie and Mike, learning and growing toward deeper emotional, spiritual, relational, intellectual, and physical intimacy with each other so we are an example of God's goodness, grace, love, redemption, and reconciliation. An example other people see and are drawn to and are encouraged by. See, marriage, like most things in life, is not about us or for us. Marriage is missional in that it points the world to the God who loves the world. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul commands husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And right in the middle of this teaching to husbands and wives, Paul says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Again, marriage is a sign and a church, Jesus' relationship with us. The church is the bride of Christ. John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the groom in John chapter 3. So you see the picture. God's divine plan is about reconciling people and all of creation to himself and to each other, restoring intimacy, bringing shalom. And every single marriage is intended to be a living and breathing and growing and dynamic illustration of this beautiful divine story. Now, I realize the struggle to embrace this in the light of the state of marriage in our time and maybe in the light of the state of your marriage. I realize this rings of the ideal, but maybe it lacks the real. But I think vision of marriage, because I'm not convinced very many of us start with God's enthralling vision of marriage. This is what God intended. This is what he had in mind right from the very beginning. And I think it is rather significant that at the end of the second chapter in this big Bible we read, written so many years ago, right here in the context of a man and woman's marriage relationship, we find this most incredible statement. They were both naked and they felt no shame. And then just a few verses later in Genesis chapter 3, the man and the woman have sinned. And the Bible says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they had coverings for themselves. The very first consequence of sin is that the eyes of the first husband and the eyes of the first wife were opened. And instead of seeing the wonder of the image of God in each other, they saw the flaws in each other. And they felt instantly incomplete. They felt inadequate. They felt like they weren't enough. So they covered themselves up. And they hid from each other. And we've been doing the exact same thing ever since. It's incredibly significant here in the first pages of the Bible that we find the concept, which I certainly know, I've talked about many times, I know from my my own experience in my own marriage 
that shame is often the central reason why this marital intimacy God desires gets severed. Shame derails God's vision of the two becoming one. So let's take a breath for just a second. I'm going to ramble as I warned you about earlier. Now would be the perfect time to ignore me, read the bulletin, or check your text messages, or order a pizza for all of us. Sometimes people have too high of expectations on marriage, either before they're married or after. They put too much weight on marriage, being the final piece needed to bring fulfillment to their lives. Subconsciously, a spouse becomes the means through which we try and fix our past or heal our wounds. And so a wife speaking on behalf of all men, we ain't got the goods to be no savior. But sometimes the hurt and scars inflicted by the important people in her past funnel into her husband, and she expects him to embody a healing love. That, and the result, as you probably know, is usually a disaster. Or a husband expects his wife to validate or affirm or respect him so as to heal the wounds of his father or at least momentarily satisfy his insatiable desire to be significant. He expects his wife then to regularly do and say things that make him feel like he's the king of the world. And as you know, the result is usually a disaster. These arrangements never work. The expectations are too high. There's too much pressure. And in short order, disappointment happens and trouble starts. The other, though, less obvious, but I think echo of expectations in marriage. And this might actually be the more hidden and yet the more urgent problem. So we settle for a C-minus relationship because the obstacles are just too big. No amount of prayer or counseling or help seems to have helped. So we resign to the fact that the relationship is never going to get any better and the hassle of continuing to work at it outweighs the potential improvement that only might happen anyhow. Exist. If we're spiritual about it, we tell ourselves, well, there's more to life and following God and making a difference than having a healthy marriage, and indeed there is, but we end up accepting this for what it is, but then we tend to go off and find ways to medicate the sadness and the regret and the bitterness, so in that sense, we haven't really accepted it. And I have to tell you, I care so much about this topic for us as a church. I recognize that there are all sorts of Different people, part of Oak Hills, and that's what we want. That's what we believe is a biblical situation. But I care deeply about this topic for us, this marriage subject, because I have the privilege on a very regular basis of meeting with people who are in the midst of their marriage struggles, people sometimes with too high of expectations and sometimes with when couples first start out their expectations are too high but with time they become disappointed so as they are together for a longer time their expectations become too low and some of you know this Julie and I have been on both ends of this and everywhere in between at times especially early on and I mean years I'm not talking about a few weeks but years We were frustrated that the other person didn't meet our every expectation. 
And we didn't know how to navigate through that frustration without heaping blame on the other person. And at other times, after we'd been married for a while, we sort of resigned ourselves to just in relationship, and neither is God's intention. And neither is good. Yes, we probably have to lower our expectations on our spouse and stop pressuring them. Yes, we have to accept that we are all the walking wounded and Jesus doesn't often do magic wand quick healings. So we will walk and relate and love one another imperfectly. Yes, when John Legend sings, all of me loves all of you. I give you all of me and you give me all of you. It is really less than all. It is a broken all. It is a flawed all. I want it to be all, but it really isn't because I can't, because I don't know how, because I'm afraid. And yes, not to be found on earth or in any idealized marriage. But in every marriage, God's desire is for the two to keep growing toward becoming one. Laying down the shame and crawling toward deeper intimacy. In every marriage represented in this room, God's desire is that, he, that we would let the Spirit of God Heal our shame and heal our fear and narrow the distance between us and our spouse. Bring us closer together emotionally, spiritually, relationally, physically, intellectually. It takes work. It's not easy. It's painful. But God's desire is that we would deepen our intimacy with our spouse. And here's the thing I want you to hear. There's nothing that can keep the Spirit of God from doing this except us. So let me try to summarize this by reading something from N.T. Wright, who's a brilliant guy. It's on the screen. You can follow along. The biblical picture of man and woman together in marriage is not something about which we can say, oh, well, they had some funny ideas back then. We know better now. The biblical view of marriage is part of the larger whole of new creation, and it symbolizes and points to the divine plan. Every time I, as a priest, celebrate the marriage of a couple, I remind myself, and I frequently remind the couple, that what we are doing is setting up a signpost. We live in a world of many storms and many winds. Those signposts can get easily battered and broken, but they are pointing somewhere. Fulfillment of God's good purposes for creation. Marriage is a sign of all things in heaven and on earth coming together in Christ. And I hope, if nothing else, that your perspective on your own marriage has raised a bit just in talking about this. So let's shift gears and start wrapping this up. There's another line in that John Legend song I've always liked. And I've liked it because it describes something I appreciate much about Julie, and I don't think I could live uh, with someone who didn't have this. Here's the line. What would I do without your smart mouth? (laughs) Drawing me in, And kicking me out, pushing back at me, 
Who do you think you are? Gently pushing back. Sometimes. <laughs> Calling out my dysfunctions. And I doing the same to her. When we used to have these arguments, we would have silent treatment toward each other. And as our relationship has morphed and grown, one of the things I so appreciate about her is that silent treatment. She will just get right in front of me. You're not doing this. Not going to do it. Look at me. Talk to me. I might get irritated a little bit when she does that, but it works. It draws me out. She pushes at my dysfunction. She calls my dysfunctions out. We did not do this in the past. Years ago, we would let the distance widen because we didn't trust each other enough to be able to talk things through about our relationship. We were defensive. The shame was too high. The covering up was too great. The greater intimacy of our relationship today is in part because we have learned how to wade in and talk about it and wade through it, not always agreeing trying to sort it out. And the process, as you can imagine, itself nurtures intimacy in a way avoiding the process can't. So I want to end by suggesting a few characteristics of a marriage culture where intimacy can flourish. Why did I pick these three? Because these are three I've seen flesh out in my life with Julie. Perhaps one of these will resonate Maybe it'd be worth camping on it together and talking about it and working at it a bit. Cultivating gentleness in a marriage relationship. Anger. Harshness. Competition. The biting cynicism between a husband and wife. This idea of advancing self by defeating the other. Julie and I have been married 28 years, and I've alluded to this and said it many times, my harshness almost ruined our relationship. My harshness and my anger almost did. See, gentleness preserves intimacy even when there is disagreement and conflict. It's one of the things that is so terribly wrong in our country right now. There's a lack of gentleness and respect in the midst of our disagreements. Gentleness, think of it this way, is the opposite of defensiveness. It's a way of being with each other. It's a way of communicating with each other. It's how we are with each other, regardless of what we are dealing with. or what. Second characteristic to cultivate is openness. This is the opposite of shame. This is the opposite of covering ourselves. It's attempting to restore the naked but unashamed aspect of a healthy marriage with each other. It's one of the problems with the song Better Man uh, that I referred to earlier. I, the chorus goes, I wish you were a better man, or flip it, I wish you were a better woman. It's oriented around the imperfections of the other instead of being open about our own fears and our own shame and our own brokenness. Openness is about letting the other person in to the stuff that matters to us. Openness is about emotional 
intimacy. And this simply cannot be done without sharing with each other, without being together, spending time together, communicating, listening first, talking, letting each other into each other's story and past and selves and about the relationship, opening up to each other. I mentioned this a number of years ago, but I remember one time when this happened in a profound way uh, in Julie's and my relationship one night. Uh, I came home, and this was, this was one of the issues that we had to sort through. The, the, the truth is it's a lot easier for me to be open and to be vulnerable than it is for her. So we have this sort of weird dynamic where it's not hard for me to say I'm struggling with this or gosh, this from my past hurts. I see how it's showing itself in the present. That's not as easy for her to do. But there was something going on in our relationship. And I remember I came home one night and she's in the chair in the living room. I don't know where the kids were. And she started just out of nowhere. She said, you know, I know that I'm overly sensitive to this and to that. And it's part of the story that I have that I got hurt early around this stuff and so I know that I have too much expectation on this and then she proceeded to tell me how I was not doing something right that was triggering that thing and so here's the picture she is telling me you're letting me down here but because of how she was doing it I'm like this is the greatest thing in the world feel like I'm being affirmed. I mean, this is like, keep going, keep going. What else have I done wrong? What else have I done wrong? But it's because of how it was communicated. It came from this place of openness and vulnerability that is hard to describe. Too often, shame drives us to cover up and hide and protect and hold each other at arm's length. Or say it this way, we keep the force field at maximum levels all the time, So no one can get through and no one can get in. And let me just say this directly. Our spouse should be allowed in. I get it. It's risky. And it is risky. But it's impossible to have intimacy without openness. The third characteristic, the last one I'm going to talk about is forgiveness. Nothing destroys intimacy in a marriage like unforgiveness. It festers And it drives spouses apart. And here I'm not so much thinking of the big things, though it's true of those as well. But here I'm thinking more of the little things. Having a marriage culture of grace. Letting things go. Not stockpiling. In the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, not keeping a record of wrongs. Learning to forgive magnificently as Jesus has forgiven us. It is a loaf of broken bread and a cup of wine, symbolic of our commitment to forgive not seven times, but 70 times seven. It is taking the initiative to talk about and do the work of reconciliation. A little unscientific observation, again, straight from the laboratory of Julie's and my marriage. The more each of us finds our identity as a beloved child of God, the quicker we forgive each other. And the less focused we are on who did what and who, according to the scales of justice in the universe, should be the one taking the advantage or taking the initiative and groveling. The more our identity is in Jesus, the more we want to pursue shalom in our relationship and who is to blame and who gets the credit becomes really unimportant. They shape souls. 
They shape us. They shape our children. They affect the walls of the house. They affect the culture. You can't skip that. You can't think, well, we'll have it all good in the culture, even though we're not good. It's impossible. Marriages are a shaping power. And they shape souls. Let's pray together. You're going to do something here that, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. Obviously, no one's going to know. But I have sat in church services when I have to walk up here and there's tension with Julie and I. And sometimes she's been next to me, sometimes she's been in the room, and I've just thought, you know, here we are, singing all these songs, praying these prayers, giving these sermons, and yet there's tension, there's distance. And I'm not so silly to think that One talk on one Sunday can bridge the big gap or break the ice. But I guess I am silly enough to think, cultivate intimacy in any marriage if the people want it. And the only way to stop it is if they stop it. So here's what I'd like to ask you to do. If you're married, I'd like you just to Hold the hand of the person you're married to. Or put your hand on their leg. And I realize some of you are having to fight through the wall of conflict that rose up on your way over here. How many of the things that shatter intimacy when taken in the full perspective of God's redemptive plan and what He's doing and the power He has poured out through His Holy Spirit in us and through us, how many of the things that keep us apart are really in the category of ultimately important? Some of them are. Many of them are not. The fears we have that keep the wall of shame high If we really understood who Jesus was and the power of His Spirit, though we would be afraid, we would be more apt to lay down the shame and crawl toward our spouse. Jesus desires for us. So, Heavenly Father, as we recognize we're on sacred ground here and all sorts of Different things characterize the different marriages in this room right now. We come to you as people who need you, who want you, who don't know how to pray sometimes for our marriage, who don't know the right words, who can't figure out the right conversation, and probably are starting to realize there is no right conversation. But we come to you believing that you have a vision of what these relationships do to give us courage. We ask you to fill us fresh with your power, with your presence, with your vision that we will see far beyond what our own eyes and brokenness and dysfunctions will see in these marriages and in ourselves. That you will lift our eyes toward the stunning vision you have of what life can be like in you, what marriage can be like in you, and that we would be people who have the courage 
however short the steps may be to walk in that way. I pray especially today for those relationships where there is deep fracture and brokenness and pain. Some of which only you know. And I pray that you will, through the mysterious power of your spirit, through whatever, you will find a way to reach these people and these marriages. And not only restore them, but set them on a course of mutual flourishing, deep intimacy, that they may be a witness, a signpost to your goodness. And we commit all these things to you, and we pray in Jesus' name.